Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and to the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioral and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access all the references mentioned here at the end of the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Lorraine Rose, who is a clinical psychologist, psychoanalytic psychotherapist, and organizational consultant based in Sydney. Now retired from from clinical practice, Lorraine has a wealth of experience over more than 40 years. She has lectured at several universities, taught on teaching programs for trainees in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Lorraine established and taught infant observation for the Institute of Psychiatry Infant Mental Health course in New South Wales. Lorraine has had a particular focus on infant parent work and in her clinical work with adults who have needed longer term intensive treatment because of the lack of bonding as infants. Her publication, Learning to Love, the Developing Relationships Between Mother, Father and Baby during the first year, which was published in 2000, focuses specifically on this area. Lorraine has also studied group phenomena and was a board member of the Australian Institute of Socioanalysis, now known as Group Relations Australia. Her latest publication, From Cradle to to Global Citizen, Finding Our Way in Turbulent Times, is a fascinating account of how the anchors of early experience or lack of them have an impact not only at the individual level, but also at the level of the group, the organizational and the political. It was described by Robin Williams, the science broadcaster, as an enthralling book, unlike anything I have seen before and twice as satisfying. Finally, I should add that Lorraine has been my first and oldest friend in Australia when I first came here over 30 years ago. Welcome, Lorraine. I wonder if we can start with asking how and why you first came into the profession of psychology. Did you start by studying psychology and what drew you to it? Well, to be honest, uh, Ruth, I think I came to psychology because there were complex family issues that I needed to deal with. Not all that, not all conscious at the time, but when it came to attending university, I felt the choice was between social work and psychology, and I did choose the psychology. I did a four-year degree at the University of Western Australia, which had a more behavioural CBT approach. Then I moved to Sydney and went into the Masters in Clinical Psychology at the University of New South Wales. Again, it was a behavioural model and the clients I treated were expected to fit into a six-session modality. 
But the reality for me was that those patients that I worked with even then averaged at least two years to get some of the changes that were needed. So I continued my involvement with them. I see that you call yourself a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. I think you very clearly call yourself that. When did you first begin to become involved in these ideas? Was there a pivotal moment in your professional or personal life? Well, when I finished my course, I knew there was a lot more to learn. And I had broadened my reading by then outside uh, CBT to include couple, family and relationship models. But in fact, the first postgraduate course I did was in body work. And I remain very grateful for that training because it alerted me to how important the body was in therapy and how the body holds memories of trauma. Um, the breath and how we use our breathing is an important way of connecting with the unconscious primitive material that resides in the body. Uh, at that time, I became also aware of infant observation program that was being run by Dr. Avril Earnshaw at the time, where you observed a baby and a mother once a week over a year. We wrote up our visits as fully as possible and our group of four took turns discussing what we did observe and what was happening between the mother and the baby. I learned an enormous amount from these seminars and the readings that were suggested. So I kept going over a five year period, staying with the same family until a second baby was born and following that baby for a year. It was a really good experience. This program was endorsed by the Tavistock in London and, and then was, became part of a, a, a Tavistock outreach course. And that led me into a personal analysis and further reading seminars. So I had a very long apprenticeship um, getting my act together to be able to deal with people's issues. That's very interesting. I'm very interested particularly in the body work uh, because I hadn't realised that you'd been involved in that. Um, so it's very much about how the body speaks um, when sometimes uh, it's not possible for people to communicate verbally, you know, particularly with children. I mean, the body will always speak with children and with infants. Yes, I think there's been a huge development in this area to understand the integration of the body and the psyche and how the two work together. Yes. Um, your, your two books, particularly your most recent one, From Cradle to Global Citizen, focuses very much on the critical developmental processes starting from birth and infancy and continuing throughout life and the various ages and stages. You make the point that these processes create a vital scaffold for us as we progress through the life stages and ultimately they have an impact on the kind of societies we create. Can you tell us something about these specific developmental processes and how they function? Well, uh, how we grow into mature adults and healthy citizens and taking part in the society is a huge question, so you'll have to bear with me a little bit. But our first relationship is with our main carer, often the mother. So in that context, we begin to learn about ourselves, starting with a sense of our own body 
and where our mother's body begins and ends and where our body begins and ends. And again, the body is crucial at this time and is a fundamental, um, a fundamental element in us, being us. And this is the beginning of developing a sense of self. And that gradual learning is the foundation of building a more sophisticated sense of who we become over our lifespan. Now, because of our interdependence, it means we must learn to rely on someone else to tend to our needs. And for this to happen, we have to learn to wait. Our first learning is that the umbilical cord is no longer there to supply all our needs on a constant basis. So we begin to learn that we need to be patient, that not everything we want or desire is just magically there for us but hopefully our basic needs will be satisfied. Then we fall in love with those who are providing us with loving care and commitment. Those loving feelings towards the one who cares for us, however, bring other feelings like possessiveness and the beginnings of envy and jealousy. This possessiveness leads to feelings of anger and frustration that the help and the support we need is not always there. While they are loving, these carers are also a source of frustration because they come and go and leave us on our own and we experience ambivalence towards them. These encounters with feelings of love and hate, desire and frustration in relation to the ones we love are something we will continue to grapple with throughout our lives. But they are also in reality, the birthplace of real love. Because as we accept those who love us as they are, not just how we would like them to be. And this enables us to grow in appreciation of their totality and their uniqueness, and not just because they provide us with what we want. The reality of who they are forms the basis of a more authentic love and an appreciation of them. And having these caring experiences also gives a basis in learning how to be on our own and to have our own thoughts and interests. We grow the capacity to hold in our mind the experience of care and support. And by taking this in, we feel complete with ourselves and not always needing attention from someone else. This enables us to be part of the family group and to experience both what we receive from that group and what we contribute. It is also through this initial partnership that we see the world as a place to be explored, enjoyed and offering the adventure of living. The sense of oneself as being important and of value is critical at this time. And this valuing sits together with the sense that we're not the center of the universe but we are part of something, an important part of something, but not the center. So then if we move on, in addition to the extended family, preschool or child, preschool childcare will provide a larger world for the child. Starting school makes a shift in the development of our capacities to deal with others in a social and cooperative way, how we handle conflict or test our skills 
or sort of ascertain our strengths and weaknesses in the outside world. It is an enormously challenging time and we have to adapt to these new circumstances. Now, adolescence is a turbulent time during which we deepen our knowledge of how we function in the world, particularly at the emotional level. And self-knowledge as an adolescent now includes facing the tempestuous, less likable side of our nature that emerges and needs our understanding and integration. And this deepening understanding is important for us to gradually manage the more diverse experiences that we encounter. And working through these issues enables us to come out the other side with a clearer perspective about ourselves, including our limitations, but a greater resilience in handling the world around us. Later adolescence means that we take on some tasks of citizenship as we exercise the right to vote or pay taxes and enter into mutual relationships with government and social institutions. So later forming a partnership, settling down and having children heralds the next cycle of development as we become responsible for the next generation. Now this time provides an opportunity to rework our own early experiences and further shapes the decisions about our choices in life. So contributing to the well-being of the family and our work can be a sort of source of satisfaction and a realization of our greater capacity to be part of the world. And then really finally, in our later years, freed from earlier responsibilities, we're able to explore deeper understandings of the human condition. At this time, we're enabled to experience a sense of the links that bind us together with a greater empathy and a sense of mutual sharing of the joys and the travails of living. At this time, we fully become citizens of the world and are able to embrace the larger notion that our shared humanity extends across all cultures and all creeds, that we're all part of one human family. So all of these processes, it's been a bit long-winded, I know, but it's such a big topic, if sufficiently traversed, enable us to become part of society and enter the mutual responsibility that's shared between governments, leaders, organisations and fellow citizens as we decide how we want our society to operate. Well, I think that's a, a very comprehensive view of, of the developmental process. And I think what really goes to the heart of it is about re reflection, isn't it? It's about people being able to take a step back. It's not just about going through a process of development um, as though it overtakes one and one just to sort of rush through it. It's also about how we can help children ourselves and really the, the, the process of taking stock is very important here, isn't it? Almost at every stage of development, you know, children being helped to take stock and reflect on what's happening for them by their parents. And then as children get older to be able to 
take a, have a reflective stance, to be able to take a step back and think about themselves and their actions and their experiences. So it's really about the creation of a mind um, as opposed to just having a brain. You know, it's not just the brain that's functioning. It's really moving as well into having a mind about yourself, minding yourself and having a mind about yourself. So it's a very comprehensive sort of picture, isn't it? Yes, and that's a good way to put it. Uh, to state it, um, taking a stock and, and uh, you know, having a mind of one's own. Um, yes, and reflection, reflection on oneself at a deeper level. And these, uh, these days, it does seem as if there are many things against fostering this sense of reflection and engagement. And engagement in, you know, it's going to cause a certain amount of emotional pain, but we need to gather that capacity um, if we're going to live a satisfying life if we're going to live a fully human life we need to uh, engage in that way yes absolutely and Lorraine in your book learning to love which is about the developing relationship between the parents and their baby in the first year you mentioned the fact that the sheer reality of the pregnancy and birth of a new human being challenges the identity of the mother and the father and you say we are no longer only who we thought we were we are more than that but also parents in the making this is a very eloquent description of the challenge of becoming a parent can you tell us a bit more about this process and how it unfolds yes i had to whittle down quite a bit to this but i think um the developing parent we need to explore certain things like our attitude to relationships our capacity to repair and our capacity to look at reality so we'll look quickly at those three things but many of us um, from our own histories and experiences do have distorted views of relationships and it's a crucial time to revisit what are our attitudes to relationships, what are our um, more unconscious um, things about relationship that we carry around inside herself, that some people might think a relationship means being enmeshed with someone rather than two separate individuals, or that a relationship means you assume the burden or the troubles are another and you have to be responsible for them. Um, uh, or another version might be that a relationship, it means that someone controls us. Um, it might also be someone will completely understand us and will support us at all times. Or it may be that our attitude to relationships is that there should be no friction or pain in a relationship. So all of these kinds of misconceptions need to be misunpacked um, and our underlying beliefs about relationships um, are really important as they form the bedrock of how we go about relating to others in the world and how the parents will go about relating to each other and to their child. And the second capacity is the capacity to repair and repair is an important part to be learning um, in, in that relationship in the early years. And if we were fortunate, we had parents who were able to repair 
the inevitable ruptures that must occur at times. So engaging with an understanding of normal developmental processes and reconsidering the developmental needs that were met or unmet as a child is, is itself a reparative process. So we reflect, as you were saying before, on our past experience and how we can repair. And if we can repair old wounds, we can arrive at a sense of the beauty and wonder of the world, as well as the sense of joy about our existence and the existence of nature. And with repair, there's a lightness of being and a sense of settledness. And if we'd looked at our earliest experiences, we come out on the other side, we have nothing to fear. But there is this process, as we've just mentioned, um, um, that has to be carried out. Many of us carry an underlying belief that no one will be interested in us. It has been inconceivable to, to believe that someone would enjoy giving us time and attention, um, what was previously denied to us. So we can be suspicious about someone who is bothering with us now. And we need to bear these kinds of sus suspicions, but move on to understand the ordinary normal process whereby a mother enjoys taking care of her baby, to understand that the process itself is rewarding that the smiles, responses and growth of the baby express the growing relationship and are intrinsically satisfying. Um, and finally, facing realities about life is important for parents. It's the greatest gift that you can give children is something about uh, the reality of how the world works. And we need to, because early experiences lead to early misunderstandings, we need during our life to clarify what reality is. And that reality needs to intrude into the distorted fantasies that have grown in the absence of proper care. And that we all have to abide by the human condition and how it operates. So fighting against it is, is not all that sensible that fate, God, destiny, or whatever it is, operates in a particular way. And on this planet, we need to breathe oxygen through our lungs, live with the laws of gravity, and within the framework of how relationships actually work. So in this kind of reality, others will understand us enough, but not completely. We have to learn to be with others and to be separate from them as well. That and, that others will bring pleasure, but they will also bring sorrow. And that conflict will be part of life. Now, none of this is negotiable. It's just the human condition. And that while our deepest longing is for our parents to be the ones who gave us our early nurturing, um, we often keep knocking on the door of that, of that long past the time that's reasonable in the vain hope that we can turn back the clock. Now this is understa understandable, but a new loyalty has to be developed, a loyalty to our own life force and what we need. And this painful reality indicates the first shoots of growth and a possibility of healing, which also brings in that notion of repair. 
Well, thank you, Lorraine. I think that's an extremely eloquent description. I'm just aware that the revisiting of the past is a vital part of this uh, process, isn't it? And, you know, just thinking a bit about that, I, I always say that whenever we work with adults in a clinical setting, we are immediately plunged into working with children. You know, that you, you can't work with an adult in psychotherapy um, without having access or, or almost immediately needing to make a connection between the problem that is presented and the person's history. So you're almost always revisiting the past. And in a sense, you're therefore always working with the child when you work with the adult. And that's the complete opposite of the CBT approach, of a cognitive behavioral approach, which can be very useful in certain areas. Although I tend to think one has to be extremely cautious and very specific about when these uh, notions are useful, because the, the whole point of CBT is that it narrows the field. It wants to keep the field, as it were, very narrow. It doesn't want to go into the whys and wherefores, history, a whole lot of complex phenomena. It wants to keep, it wants to look at one single variable and try to address that and almost sort of get rid of it. Um, you know, whereas I always, you know, in, in a way in psychotherapy, the medium is the message, the problem is the message. I tend to say the problem is the opportunity in order for to be able to start to do the work about what it means. So we're really looking very much um, at, at meaning and we review what our parents were like for us, good or not, how we want to be as parents. And your work very much legitimizes this consideration of the past and, and that, of course, is a central theme of psychodynamic work and understanding. And it's been very central to your extensive infant parent work with individuals and couples and groups. Is, is that correct? Yes, yes. And I think we're probably reaching a point in, um, in our understanding, which always takes time to get out there, um, that the behavioural approach can be incorporated at different moments, but it is not it is not going to give us any of the answers because now we know the neuroscience research together with infant mental health research and observational studies are all converging to produce an understanding of our emotional life. And as this occurs, these disciplines begin to influence each other and they're offering a deeper understanding of how we become fully human and learn to relate emotionally to others. So we can now confidently say our earliest experiences as babies have much more relevance to our adult selves than we formerly realised. It is as babies that we first feel and learn what to do with our feelings and organise our experience in a way that will affect our later behaviour and thinking capacities. And all these concerns are beginning to form the basis of what is called affective neuroscience. And attachment theory has worked closely with neuroscience to understand how we form bonds with each other, both physically and psychologically. And we've also got a better picture of what happens when things go wrong, what we may, where, what we may, need, what may need intervention and exposure to different experiences in order to change the template that has been established at this critical time. So cross-sections of the brains of neglected and abused children show disruption in the neuronal pathways 
in the relational areas of the brain. But every stage of our development is important in shaping who we become. And each stage can either produce distortions or bring us to our full potential. And the primacy and intensity of our earliest states imprints on us because of the utter dependency at this time. We can change the neuronal pathways initially laid down in the beginning, but it requires effort, consistency, and the will to do so. But bringing our pre-verbal selves into consciousness is now more possible as we grow in our awareness of its functioning. And the implications of this will take time to evolve, but a better understanding of this period means we can incorporate our pre-verbal selves into a general understanding or collective awareness of our nature and needs. These parts will be more readily available for our thought and reflection rather than a reenactment. And it's another piece of the puzzle of who we are and therefore of managing ourselves in our community, society and environment. So that this helplessness and vulnerability that are inherent in the primitive processes we experience in our early years touch at the heart of our current struggle with our narcissism and connect with the state with the, the world is in at the moment. If we were more in touch with and sensitive to these parts of ourselves, we just wouldn't be able to be as destructive as we are to our environment and to Mother Earth. We're biting the hand that feeds us. Being disconnected from these states is the only way to have reached a point that within living memory, the planet could become uninhabitable. Further, we would be able to wage war in the way we do if we were connected and we would think through consequences first and would look at implicit expectations for the future. Um, how we bond and stay attached to others is at the core and the health um, of, of the world and, the, and our individual brain. Thank you, Lorraine. So I'm just thinking about how that links in with your book, From Cradle to Global Citizen, and just coming back to that book, which is such a comprehensive account of individual development linking to the times that we live in. Um, the subheading of the book is Finding Our Way in Turbulent Times. Um, how did this book come about and what made you decide to write it? Well, it's probably getting close to 10 years ago when I first thought about it. Um, the book took about six, seven years, but I wrote the book to help me keep sane uh, as I was worrying about the direction that Western societies had been taking. Um, and so after the, really with a thumbnail history, after the last war, uh, there was a move towards governments developing programs that responded to the needs of the society after, um, because things were in a bad way. And this, this movement developed a sense of social cohesion. But around about the 80s, Ronald Reagan in the US and Margaret Thatcher in the UK propagated sort of neoliberal policies that downgraded the role of government. It emphasized privatization and corporate power increased again. 
if business, the, the underlying belief was that if business was unfettered, it was assumed there would be a trickle down effect. Now, this has proven not to be the case. Uh, and as a result, greed became good and money, not humanity, became central. And Australia also took on these policies. And also because of the influence of the US, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank imposed structural adjustments on smaller countries to cut government spending on education, health and the environment. And devaluation, speculation, open markets and eliminating tariffs were encouraged so globalised corporations could act in their own interests in the way that they wanted. Now, there has been a U-turn in the last few years on these policies, but a lot of damage has been done and inequalities within societies have reached unsustainable levels and we can see all the disjunctiveness and the impact of that in the world today. The Nordic model in Denmark, Norway and Sweden, they really only have a slightly higher tax, but they manage to have a political consensus that does place a high priority on family-friendly policies, in particular, those that encourage the nurturing of children through workplace flexibility. Many people work part-time, uh, women's participation in the workplace is high, and Norwegians can have paid parental leave, and the society supports combining work and family obligations. And these are the kinds of thinking and reflections and policies that we could adopt in Australia, but we just haven't. And just thinking a bit more about the book, um, you expressed as May about the lack of common cause, what you, what you describe as common cause in so much of what passes for political decision-making, even political discourse. You write about the need to respect the social contract between leaders and citizens. How would you describe this and how would it improve the, the betterment of society as a whole? That's a, quite a big question. <laughs> yes, it is a big question. And I feel that we've covered um, a lot of territory. Um, but I did, I thought about this and I thought, well, I might just tell a story, it's a true story, and it's an Australian story, but it kind of encapsulates all the sort of ideas that we're trying to put together here. Um, so really, I mean, the thesis that we're talking about is that to be alive is to honour our social nature. This is who our are, who we are, and our interdependence as our greatest asset. This is, as human being, it's the most primal instinct. The baby seeks out the nipple, it seeks out the mother's eyes. This is, this is who we are and there's hope in that. This is our nature, not this other nature that's striving, uh, seeking, wanting to outdo other people, compete, etc. But And we have a, a striking example of this in Australia, in our own history. And this is a story that I do put at the end of the book, but it does hold all the elements that we've been trying to put together. In World War II, both Australian and British soldiers, uh, they were prisoners of war on the Burma Railway. Later, it emerged that the Australians had a higher survival rate than the British. And researchers discovered that while in turn, the prisoners were paid a pittance 
as prisoners of war, officers did receive slightly more. Now, the difference was that the British individually kept their money while the Australians pooled their resources and they fared better. So I think this story shows that as humans, our survival and lives will be better off if we cooperate rather than compete or remain isolated. And then all of these lessons reverberate back to our earliest beginnings. I think that's a very evocative story, isn't it? About the sharing and the, um, the, the, the connection between ourselves and everybody else that we, you know, it's a bit like um, the John Dunn poem, you know, that no man is an island, that the, the absolute connection between everybody. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a fantastic uh, place. I mean, you, you bring it together so beautifully, the infant, the, um, the child, the developing individual, but really also the developing world and the kinds of issues and challenges that we face. So Lorraine, thank you so much. Um, and you know, lots and lots of things to think about. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ruth. And keep up the good work. Thank you. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.